This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mate. It's a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. How are you? Pumped. Yes. We've got a, another series uh, expert investor joining us here in the studio. I think it's the first expert investor we've actually had live with us in the studio. So pretty exciting time. That's a big honor. Yeah. Big <laughs> honor. Thank you. <laughs> so without further ado, I'd like to introduce everyone to uh, Toby Bucks, Tobias, as his mother calls him, but uh, we'll go with Toby. Toby is portfolio manager at Ausbill Investment Management, specializing in global small caps. So welcome to the show, Toby. Thanks a lot, guys. So before we get stuck into the meat of the episode and, and a bit about Ausbill and small caps, I always like to start with a bit of a game break the ice a bit and understand where you stand on a few asset types or strategies and and that sort of stuff. So it's overrated, underrated. We'll throw a few things at you and we'd love to know your opinion on where you stand and perhaps why. So overrated or underrated, the ASX 200. Oh, goodness. I'd say overrated. I think it's overrated. I think it's over-researched. I think it's overvalued and I think it's got a really narrow opportunity set. So yeah, overrated. Sound like a small cap fund manager. Yeah. <laughs> so we can probably guess your answer to the next one, but we'll ask it anyway. Overrated or underrated, the NASDAQ 100? I think it's overrated. <laughs> there you go. Look, it's great, growthy, large cap names. These are really good business models. They've got great themes behind them, but they're really well-researched. They're over-researched. There's not a lot of inefficiency. There's not a lot of unrecognized growth. You pay for what you get, but relative to global small caps, they're overrated. So we'll probably pick up on a few things that you mentioned there a bit later on. Again, then I can assume the same answer is going to apply here, the FTSE 100. Yeah, overrated. <laughs> same things. Like it's a good mixture of multinationals. Brexit resolution might help, but at the end of the day, over-researched, not that inefficient, many more opportunities in global small caps. So we actually have interviewed a couple of UK guests recently, and as people may have been able to pick up, you're from the UK. They have both said that the FTSE 100 is a very weird index, and they didn't really elaborate on that. So do you think the same thing? And maybe we can finally get someone to elaborate on why it's weird. It's a bit like the Australian index. It's quite concentrated in, in what's in there. So in Australia, we got we got financials, we got banks, and we got miners, quite cyclical, and they quite they drive the returns quite a lot. When you look at the FTSE, it's quite a lot of international names in the FTSE. So they might be resided in the UK, but they're genuinely multinationals like Unilever, etc. So those kind of businesses, I suppose a funny way to put it is when the, when the pound, this pound sterling improves, the FTSE goes down. And likewise, if you see the FTSE go down, you'd expect to see the pound go up at at the same time. So it is kind of weird like that, but it's mostly good quality multinational businesses. So then probably a bit more in your wheelhouse, Toby, overrated or underrated the global small cap sector? Underrated. <laughs> that was an That's absolute soft roll. Yeah. Oh, I just about managed to catch that. <laughs> Look, yeah, underrated, under-researched, under-owned, massive opportunity set to find absolute gems. Yeah, really looking forward to to unpacking that because I think there's a big opportunity as millennial investors particularly to bring small caps into our portfolios. So, Overrated or underrated, the US-China trade wars affect on Australia's economy? Overrated. Look, 
the, the Australian economy really does depend on the health of the Chinese economy. But also at the same time, the Chinese economy was going down before trade wars started. Even if trade wars don't get resolved, which they look to be getting resolved, but even if they don't get resolved, the Chinese economic environment could still continue to improve. It's been improving for two to three months in China, and that could keep going through reform and stimulus. So it's not necessarily the, the be-all and end-all, but it does have an effect. So one thing that we've been discussing on the show quite recently is using leverage in uh, our investing strategy, overrated or underrated? For your own stocks, like buying stocks on margin or buying companies that have lots of debt? Buying stocks on margin. Like it, it makes your investments more volatile. I suppose one good thing about it is is that you can make more money. The bad part about it is y- y- your ability to stomach a loss goes down a lot because you're so levered. So I'd say it's underrated. It, it can really help you. But at the same time, you're going to need to do a lot of work on what that means for how much money you should put down on an individual bet. Because essentially all you're doing is timesing what you invest by a lot. So it, it can affect how long you can hold a position that's going against you. But if you're really sure on something and you think it's going up and you buy CFDs in the right direction or you take some other sort of leverage, then you'll do really well. What about the other one, buying companies with a load of debt? See, I, I think I think leverage is underrated, but it depends, right? If you're looking at long duration assets like uh, infrastructure or assets with certainty of of returns, then you should do that and and buy leverage. But if you're dealing with quite cyclical like mining services companies, you don't want any debt there because it can go south pretty quickly. So last one for this game, overrated or underrated studying finance? At uni, massively overrated. Do something less boring. Like It's the one time in your life when you can really go and have a good time and you should. And go and study something that makes you think. That's me speaking from personal experience. And also, if you ever get into investments, the investment firms will pay for your study. So you can do it all then. Outside of uni, I I think studying finance is underrated. We we shall be learning as long as we can in life, like till we die. And uh, if you're interested in investing, you want to to make loads of money. So the more you study, the, the better you should do. So let's get stuck into your personal journey, I guess. We always like to get an understanding of how you got to where you are and I guess some of the lessons that you learned along the way. What did you study at uni? So I, I did an under and a, a master's in social anthropology. Which is, is that the fun stuff? That's the fun <laughs> stuff. It's, it's the study of people and culture. It's, I, I, it's really interesting because it teaches you how people think and how power operates between people and Hopefully it should teach you to think on yourself and critically assess material. I did science at school, which I really enjoyed, but I didn't want to go to university and have to get up at 9am for labs. I wanted to go and read books and think. So. And has that helped you, to, do you think, in your profession today? I definitely think it's a huge help. I'd encourage most people to try and read some sort of arts or philosophy to try and understand how they think. It's about how you think, not how someone else should tell you to think. And that's a journey you need to go and discover. Textbooks don't teach you how to think. They teach you how to do a calculation. So I I think you can learn how to do a calculation when you're in an environment where you're having to do those calculations every day for your job. Then it's applied, then it becomes more interesting. But if you sat at home when all your mates are out partying or at a social anthropology party and you're you're trying to work out the discounted cash flow of some bond, you're not going to have your heart in it. You can learn that when you go and join an investment firm. At uni, you should be, I don't know, or before that, you should be discovering yourself and trying to work out what makes you tick and what you care about and what your own personal biases are because... 
It's a big part of anthropology is bias and cultural bias and personal bias. And one of the biggest things that holds back any investor, I think, is your own personal biases, your emotional bias, your confirmation bias. It's very difficult to call yourself a terrible investor when you made a bad mistake, but you kind of really need to go through that process. So I'm interested in how you went from a social anthropology student to a global small caps fund manager. But to get there, we always like to start with people's first investments. We think people learn a lot and there's generally some good stories that come out of people's first dabble in the market. So what was the story of your first investment and did you learn anything from it? I learned a bit. My first investment was quite boring. So I'll go through that first. I had the first time I actually took a punt on a stock after that was more interesting. But the first thing I did is I had a few shares left from three companies that my granddad had left me in companies he worked for, like Rolls-Royce and businesses like that. And when I first got a job, I sold those shares and put the money in the fund that I was working on, which was great because my boss thought it was brilliant that I was personally invested. <laughs> but I suppose the key learning is that you've got to invest in something that you're close to, something that you care about and something that you understand and want to work more on like you've got to be able to touch your investments because if you can't really do the research from inside your own heart and care about it you're never going to have the attention or the understanding to get your head around it you've got to be passionate about it and it's got to be close to you a bit after that i did try and invest on a stock i didn't know much about investing i was fresh out of uni and on my learning curve and uh, one of the coal analysts told me about this great coal stock that was definitely going to make so much money i could buy a house and i lost everything on it pretty much so i think that again it's the same thing don't go and trust someone else if you don't know about what you're investing in don't invest in it how would you define your personal investing philosophy i've got an investing philosophy now that's been been affected by doing this over many years and it's based on academic research and based on personal experience my philosophy is is i try and keep it quite simple but there are three main things for me you want to buy quality companies and you want to buy quality companies at the right price and you want to buy unrecognized growth and i'm all about unrecognized growth and at osbill we're about what we call positive earnings revisions which is unrecognized growth when people out there get pleasantly surprised by companies announcements the share price goes up focus on quality because at the end of the day i'm a firm believer that you want to buy a really good business and what I, that's what quality means to professional investors is a really good business so what we define by that is peer group leading returns so you, you get a better return on the money you, you invest than other immediate industry peers. We want a management team that does exactly what they say they do on the tin. You don't want to invest in people that will tell you one thing and then come up with a range of excuses. You know, like your mate who never pays you back at the pub and there's always an excuse. You don't want to invest in those teams. You want to invest by quality as well as a company that's really focused on ESG. And for us, that's really important. At Osbill, we're one of Australia's leading ESG houses. And ESG is, is a really complicated issue right now. Shouldn't be that complicated, but it's quite nuanced maybe in the investment community. And it's really important for us. And it's not just saying we're not going to invest in coal mines or we don't invest in, in oil and gas. It's more about that you can get really good returns by a company that improves its industry position. So if you get a company that over many years is getting better and better industry position through having a very forthright and set out view of what's right and ethical for their industry and their stakeholders, what happens is that all the employees, the customers, the suppliers, everyone comes along for the ride and the company improves its industry position and you get really good industry returns. And so when I say you want to focus on quality management teams with a strong focus on ESG, what I mean is if you get a quality management team that's really focused on the environmental factors and considerations in their business, the social considerations and 
having improving their governance, that tends to bring everyone along for the ride. It's not mutually exclusive to have a company that's really focused on profitability, but isn't focused on its impact in the community or focused on its impact on the environment or what it can do to make the lives of its employees better. Those two aren't mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. So you want to invest in quality. And I think you want a company that's got a good theme behind it, improving industry position. So those things, they make sense. And I, and I firmly believe that if you do that, you stand a really good chance of getting positive surprises, not negative surprises. And then value, of the, the second of the three key pillars. Value is really important because uh, you make your money the day you buy something, the price you pay for it that day, because you don't really know when you're going to have to sell it or why you're going to have to sell it. Maybe you want to buy a house. Maybe you want to buy a new car. Maybe you've got a bill you've got to pay. You just don't know when you're going to need to liquefy investments. So it's really important to make sure you pay a good price for it. And then the unrecognized growth part, and that's a key pillar. And, and the reason for that is you, you can buy quality companies at the right valuations, but if they're not delivering positive surprises, you're not going to get that, that positive share price reaction. And by unrecognized growth, I mean, it's like I said earlier, when, when people see the result in the market of, of an acquisition or of their actual underlying quarterly results and they say, and they get pleasantly surprised, that's more than we expected. The future looks rosier than we thought it did. Share price is going to go up. And also academic research shows, style research throughout time shows that if you focus really on quality and on value, you will outperform. But also just interestingly, recognized growth. So companies with high forecast growth underperform over time as a style factor. So if you're always going out there buying companies that are expected to grow a lot, you won't make money. You've got to go out there and buy companies that aren't expected to grow, but actually deliver growth. And that's the unrecognized growth. So I think the first two concepts there are good companies at a great price. Uh, people are familiar with the Warren Buffett quote is brought out a lot. The third one I think is new and really interesting. And the question that immediately comes to my mind is, how do you recognize unrecognized mm. growth? Because mm. by definition, you're doing something that the rest of the market, you're seeing something the rest of the market isn't seeing. Yeah. So what's your process and what do you look for there? Genius. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Social anthropology. I'm afraid I can't tell you that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I joke. Look, um, you're right. That's the art form, right? They say it's a science and an art. You can use maths to do the science part to work out what companies have a better return on invested capital or return on capital employed, and you can plug the numbers with quant, and you will come up with stocks that are high quality and stocks that are cheap. And you can do the work around ESG that I've spoken about, and you can find those two factors. But the third factor is the heavy lifting bit. That's, that's the art bit. It's a bit like, it's the inchoate. It's like the dark at the bottom of the stairs. You can kind of see it, but you can't define it. You can't touch it, and you can't understand it. It's just the inchoate. And to get your head around that, I think basically that's the luck part, a lot of it, because you're saying I understand the narrative of this investment case better than the market understands the narrative, which is essentially an incredibly arrogant statement <laughs> yeah. and prone to screwing up. So it's hard. And, and I think that the thing is, in anything that's kind of the chance comes into it, you've got to give yourself a head start. So what we try and do is say, well, this is the stuff we understand. And if we try and get enough of this research right, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll come out well. And that's essentially what, what any investor is trying to do, isn't it? It's trying to get your head around some of it. You know, you don't know what the definite answer is, but you're trying to give yourself a head start. So by head start, it comes back to management teams that underpromise and overdeliver. They do exactly what they say on the tin. So if you're starting investing in companies that previously 
have gone out and said, we, we've got this business plan and we expect to deliver this. If historically that same management team has under-promised and over-delivered, you've got a good chance that going forward they're going to under-promise and over-deliver. If you start off with a management team that says they're going to deliver 20 and they only ever come out with 15 and there's excuses, then that's not a great start. So I think definitely you can, as Newton said, stand on the shoulders of giants. You can give yourself a massive head start by just focusing on businesses under-promise and over-deliver. That's half the game. And I think the other half of the game is, isn't about the, the narrative of the investment case. What we do is we look for businesses that compound value creating events together. So what we're saying is you have a really good management team and they've got value creating initiatives. Even if three of the five, only three of the five initiatives work out and come off, that, that three of the five, the sum is still greater than the underlying parts and will give you positive earnings revision. What you've got to do is discern yourself. What is it you're doing in these five areas to create value? And if you're compounding these initiatives together, even if you, the management screw a couple of those up on the investment roadmap, you're still going to get huge value creation. So the unrecognized growth and those two parts, one, give yourself a head start by backing people that have under-promised and over-delivered in stuff that you care about, where you think there's a good theme behind it. So buy a digital broadcaster, not a newspaper, right? And then the other half is, what is that management team doing to create value? And, and if they're a good team and they're doing lots of sensible things, and your research, or you think those things can work, they make sense, that they're, they're tangible, then you've got a good chance. Are you able to give us an example of something, I guess, you've been either working on or that's in your portfolio at the moment that maybe ticks all five of those value creation, or you know, you came to understand the narrative and, and went down the path and it's been a success, just to, I guess, tie that whole thing together and give us a bit of a concrete example of a company? Yeah. So um, since the start of the fund and before that, we've owned a stock called The Trade Desk. It's listed in the US. It's about $12 billion market cap now. It's gone up a lot. We bought it at 60 bucks. I think it's now trading at 240 and we're starting to sell down the position. We still think there's a lot of upside, but we see sort of 200 to 300% upside in much smaller stocks. And we've already had a massive return out of The Trade Desk. We expect it to go up a lot over the next few years, but We've got some other ideas we think are more interesting. So, so how does that business fit in? We actually went around telling people that it was the next Google about a year ago, which brought on a lot of laughter from my colleagues. People thought I was being a bit silly. But it, it is the next... <laughs> Rightly so. Is yeah. it still the next Google? <laughs> but yeah, it's still the next alphabet. So uh, the trade desk is programmatic buy side demand-side programmatic advertising platform. So programmatic advertising is now on video on demand, subscription funded, so Disney, ESPN+, etc. It's on podcasts, which are actually growing 200% in terms of the, the advertising on podcasts. It's huge. You guys are well aware, right? Um, and also, every time you look at your phone or your computer, every time a banner or an advert comes up, those things are bid for in the background. Which you guys will know your media, your media heads. <laughs> Content kings. Content kings, right? Are you upselling your inventory as we speak, I'm sure. But I think the, the, just to give a little bit of background, all these things bid and there are loads of different, different platforms and loads of people bidding and huge algorithms bidding this data. So, you know, because they know about you. What did you last look at? Some information about you. And that helps people bid. And so just to try and finish off the story... The Trade Desk is an independent business. I mean, it's taking market share off Alphabet, which is Google and YouTube, and off Facebook, which is Facebook and Instagram. And it's taking share away from them. And there's many reasons why. But the main reason is because Facebook and, and Alphabet, Google, are turning the lights off for the internet. They're making things harder, whereas the Trade Desk is turning the lights on, and it's got a much improving industry position. So to try and to, that, so that's just trying to give it some type of background. You've got a business that's going to really take part 
in the growth of programmatic advertising. So you go from having targeted audience only to having reach and targeted audience. So now we all watch Game of Thrones or we all watch whatever we want to watch, but we're going to get an advert that's very specific to us. So the value of that ad inventory is going up and up and up. And if you can help people bid for it, you're in a great place to take share. 75% of the internet's Google and Alphabet and, and Facebook. They're turning the lights off. You can't see the how much or how worth your advert was if you placed it through Google AdWords at all. So that's the background. Back to those five areas to try and tie it in for you. So Trade Desk was founded by a guy called Jeff Green after he sold his business to Microsoft in 2010. It was a programmatic ad business. He left Microsoft with his partner, Dave Pickles, and they set up a whole new algorithm for how to measure what someone was interested in. Because they said at the very start, in our industry, you shouldn't know people's personal information. You shouldn't know their email address, their date of birth, their name. You shouldn't know that stuff about them because it's not right and ethical. So they built that and they offered it to people. And what happened is Google and, and well, Alphabet and Facebook went on their merry way, turning the lights off for the internet, con- putting up these walled gardens to control people and not give them information and, and gouge them for price. Um, and at the same time, the trade desk was saying, well, you know what, we're actually going to find a way for you to put to have targeted advertising, but without people's personal information, because we've built a way for you to do that. And so now we're offering you a better solution than what Google offers you. And people have flocked to that. And that's because at the beginning they set out and said, well, this is what's right and ethical for our industry. But you shouldn't have people's data. It's not fair. And as you move through time, you've seen that Google and, and, or Alphabet and Facebook have come and had issues. And when Facebook had the Cambridge Analytica scandal where that data was, was, was taken and used maliciously, Google got scared and removed third-party cookies. And so now everyone needs to use trade desk equivalent which is called unified id solutions to help them be able to target people and it's because the trade desk thought about that beforehand and said we need to create a way of being able to target people without using that information that now everyone's going to them on a capital structure just to go back to the five points they've got a great balance sheet lots of opportunities to invest we see that money being invested and invested well in terms of the cost structure they've got operational leverage so they've got scale essentially what you've got is a massive algorithm so all you need is computing capacity. So there's huge scale in that, as anyone can see. On the new products and new markets, well, they're interconnected TV. So video on demand like Disney, ESPN, and audio like Spotify and Pandora. And they're also on most of the internet, pretty much the whole internet, X, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Google. And then on the segment part, the product mix part, the advertising you get in connected TV and audio is worth way more than it is on digital banner advertising on a desktop page. I don't look, I don't remember any adverts I see on a desktop page anymore. And then on the management side, they're improving their management team. They're bringing more and more people, but they've always had a lead on ESG. So you go through that and you're like, well, you guys are compounding lots of value creating events together. There's a great theme behind what's driving you. I know that advertising is going programmatic and it's going digital. So anyone can work that out and anyone can work out that you don't turn on the tv and start watching the seven o'clock news anymore you go and watch exactly what you want to watch whether it's on youtube or any other sort of video on demand and you watch it on your phone and you watch it in bite size and you do what you want so the world's changing and it's going they're going to benefit so i'm interested well firstly we could just listen to you talk stocks all day yeah. i think <laughs> <laughs> I reckon there's a lot of Google searches for the trading desk right now. But I'm interested in using that example to transition into discussing small caps more generally, because you've just given a really strong case for why the trading desk is a great company. 
and yet it's at $12 billion market cap now. It's probably not a small cap anymore or it's not for long. And you're selling down your position despite the fact that it is this great company that's creating so much value. So with that as the context, can you tell us why you focus on small caps rather than just good companies in general? Yeah. So uh, it's, it's about the, the return you get. I'm more interested in finding a company that no one really knows about and doing the work on an undiscovered way, but that's just trying to be cool and enjoy myself. That's an intellectual. That's not about your risk return. But the small cap risk return is so much better than the one you get with large and mid caps. It's not funny. And that's something that needs to be stressed. So to put it in context, global small caps have outperformed global mid and large caps by three and a half percent a year over the last 20 years. Historically, it's actually more than that. Now, 3.5% a year doesn't sound like a lot to, to someone, but because you have to pay 1% every time you use your credit card. But 3.5% <laughs> a year, 3.5% a year compounded over 20 years is double your return. And the reason you get much better return with small caps is, is twofold, really. One, underlying growth. And two, not many people, it's under-researched under and it's a more inefficient market. You get more opportunities to cover stocks. So stocks we, stocks we look at are covered by two to eight people. When you go and look at stocks like Alphabet, which is Google or Facebook or those MasterCard or, or Microsoft, you're dealing with 40 plus 50 analysts. So you're not going to find something that's unrecognized. Everyone knows, and it's very arrogant to go out there and say, look, I know more than these people that have been covering this industry and this stock for 30 years for Merrill's or Goldman in New York. Like, you just, you're going to lose that game every single day. But just going back, you get a higher return, and you get a higher return because you get more underlying growth, and you get it's a, less people are looking at it and doing the work on it. On the growth characteristics, you also get a much better risk-adjusted return with small caps than you do with large and mid caps. So not only you get a better total return, you get a better risk adjusted return, which is effectively your return divided by the risk you've taken. And the reason why you get a much better risk adjusted return is because what drives the stock price of a small cap is, research says, 75% what the board and the management are doing, and 25% what the US yield curve or the interest rate looks like or what we call top-down factors so what trump's tweeted overnight or what's happened in the u.s china relationship or what the federal reserve chairman said or where the yield curve's going so because of that stock specific risk you get a lot of opportunity to get large upside because in an environment where maybe a large cap peer of a small cap stock might be suffering say they're an industrial business and if the industrial economy is slightly weakening a large cap industrial stock will go down because they're so diversified there's not much they can do to get round the fact that the economy is going backwards for a bit if you get a small cap industrial it's niche in what they do they mainly only have one or two segments that they're very good at and there's a reason why that stock might be taking over more of its industry and growing market share so it doesn't really matter what trump tweeted last night you're still going to go up because the earnings are still going to go up how do you or Ausbill actually define the difference between small and mid and large? So it, it's slightly different between domestic and globally. So on a global basis, uh, 500 million US dollars to 5 billion US dollars market capitalization is defined as a small cap. Globally, around sort of 7 billion up to 25 billion is defined as a mid cap. And above that is defined as a large cap. In Australia, obviously, X100 would be a small cap, and the X3, SX300 would include quite a lot of mid-cap and small-cap companies. So our average market cap at the moment is about just over 4 billion US dollars. So domestically, we'd be considered 
more of a small to mid-cap fund. Globally, it's not the same. Um, and there are reasons for that we can go into, but I don't know if we got long enough. <laughs> it's not that interesting. Well, I'll, I'll just have a quick follow-up then. Why global small cap and not just focus on the domestic if what you're saying, the, the majority in our market would be classified as sort of small, medium? Why spread the wings a bit? Okay, I love that question because it's what I'm passionate about. Another um, softball. <laughs> yeah. So look, to, to put it in context, it's your opportunity set. So like how many stocks you get to go and pick from. And the second part is what sort of companies there are. So if you look at Australia, 60% of the market is banks and materials. Only 2.5% of the index is IT. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So I actually brought the figures down because it's something I love to try and uh, ram down people's throat. But I think it's a reason why everyone should look at investing globally, particularly personally, because you just get more opportunities. The more things you get to pick from, the higher chance you have of picking a gem. If you only get to pick from two or three stocks, you're not going to get the best in the world. And you want the best in the world. Also, almost all businesses are global now. So it doesn't matter what you do unless you're a local cement dealer, but any other type of business, whether it's in healthcare or IT or whatever, they operate globally. So they're all in the same industry, whether they're listed in Sweden or Japan or, or Australia. But there's 300 stocks in the ASX 300. In fact, there's not. There's about 296, but we don't need to worry about that. Um, and uh, there's 4,354 companies in global small caps. So more than 10 times the amount of businesses to go and look for. And also in the ASX 300, you have 20 IT stocks to choose from. And they're all very expensive because they're the only stocks that domestic IT people can buy. We've got 466. So we've got many more opportunities to go and find the next Google, like the Trade Desk. Also in industrials, we've got 802 industrials to look at. Domestically, you've got 29. We've got 600 consumer discretionary names to look at. There's 33 in Australia. So overall, you've just got many more opportunities to go and find many different stocks and stocks in, in industries that we don't have in Australia, which is a key part. And it's a more balanced opportunity set. So it's not all focused on people digging ore out the ground and people dealing with lending and money. It's more to do with people doing all sorts of other businesses. And I think that's really important because one of the main things I feel so close, I tried to touch on it before, but if you're an investor, you've got to really care and be passionate about what you're investing in. You've got to be able to understand it. You've got to be able to touch it particularly when you're, when you're younger and you're starting to invest. There's no point going investing in something that you find boring, like a toll road. 
Like, go and invest in something that you know about because you'll get so much more out of it. So, I'm interested 4,000-odd stocks. That, that's a lot. I've only got so many hours in the day and you, I assume you've only got so many researchers at Ausbill. So, when you're confronted with that much choice and that much opportunity, so many global factors... How do you start tackling that number of stocks and how do you, what's your process and your team's process to whittle down to the stocks that you know have great quality, great value and unexpected yeah. uh, earning surprises? That's a great question. We always get asked it. And I tell my bosses because I work so bloody <laughs> yeah. hard. I am ridiculous. No, like anything, we've got a process. Yeah, so we really like quality and value. So as I said, you can you can create algorithms to search the market for quality and value in the way you define it, which is going to be up to you. And that can help you look at all the stocks in the world based on how they score versus each other. And so then you can get a selection. So what you do, yeah, you narrow down your target list of, of stocks to go and research yourself on what we call a fundamental basis where, you, you know, we go through the annual report, we speak to management, we speak to customers, we speak to suppliers, we go and see what people in the industry think about them. So you've got to narrow it down first. Um, and then you kind of know what you're looking for as an investor because everyone's got their own personal style. And after many years in the industry, you'll get to know what you really like and why you like it and understand how it's going to work. And when you see business models with experience, you'll start to say, oh, I don't, that business model is actually a little bit risky or that business model is less risky than people think. So that, that naturally evolves over time. But yeah, so what we do, we narrow it all down using what we call a screen. People in the industry will call a screen and that's based on the quality and value factors. And then of that, we go and look at them and do heavy lifting on those stocks. So we probably look at 500 to 600 stocks in detail, some of which of those we stop researching early on in the piece when we decide that management's maybe a little bit over-optimistic or not on top of their environmental factors or don't care about their employees. Or when we go and research the employees, you find the employees don't really like the business or they don't feel nourished. That's a bad sign. You, you know, you've got to buy businesses where the employees want to be there. That's so key. One of the biggest challenges I think any investor faces, you know, particularly early on in their journey is when it comes to small caps is actually finding enough information on the companies without having to actually go and chat to employees or go to the AGM and actually suss it out for yourself. What, what's something that we could do, I guess, to alleviate that pain a little and perhaps bring small caps into our portfolios more without just buying a small cap index? So, And this is where I think younger people have a massive edge on old people who wear double-breasted suits and have already earned all their dough that we so desperately want. <laughs> so, yes, annual reports, absolutely key. L listen to conference calls. All this stuff's on the website. I'd urge people to go and look at uh, employee. So on the internet, you've got a plethora of information. So you can go and find that there's very specific industry professional forum sites. So if you're looking at a company that you want to invest in because you think it's going to go up a lot and no one else realizes that yet, then you want to go and whatever industry it does, go and find that specific industry professional website. There will be a forum on the internet, just like there's a forum for people who play Sims. There's a forum for people <laughs> who are, are, are a very specific type of gas engineer or a very specific type of, of um, development operator you know, for a software company. They're very, so go and find that stuff and read what people are saying because you, you'd be so surprised by how much information's out there. People will write when they have a bad boss. People will write when they love their company. People will write when the company's investing. So you can go and find that. YouTube, uh, no, I was talking about the trade desk instead of Google, <laughs> but YouTube's fantastic. You couldn't do this 10, 15 years ago. So when you go and find a small cap, they'll probably do something that you don't understand, even if you're passionate about it. 
whatever they do do, there'll be a video of it on YouTube. So you can immediately learn yourself and get that learning of how it works and what they actually do. So I'd recommend, everyone's got the same Google. Oh, no, get up your web browser of choice. Be it Bing. 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 <laughs> yeah, come on, Bing. Fight the good fight. And uh, Firefox. And, uh, and uh, get up that Internet Explorer, anyone? <laughs> um, get, up, get, up that, get up that web browser and just start looking down the rabbit warren of the Internet. Because you don't need to go and speak to people or go to these AGMs where no one's going to listen to you anyway, especially as a young millennial. Like, just go out there and do the research yourself because you will know it'll be written there. What you want to try and do is get an understanding for what's going on in the industry, not what's happened to a particular company's contracts. That's a, a no-no. You will go to Sing Sing. But it's more important to say, OK, is this company improving its culture? They're hiring people. Do people want to go and work there? Do people like working with them? Is, is the stuff they tell us in their company presentations true or is it a pipe dream? So I guess the, the flip side of the opportunity set that we were talking about before is I'm sure there's often times where there's more stocks that you want to own than you can in your portfolio. So can you talk us through how you manage the portfolio and when you decide you want to sell? Yeah, absolutely. I've got way more stocks than are currently in the portfolio Send that I want to buy. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you guys a list. I, 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 I could talk about stocks all day long if you want to do another podcast because there's so many great businesses out there. And I think talking through examples can give people a better understanding of what, what makes a good investment. So what do we do? Well, look, we, we run a portfolio that, where we want to deliver what we call niche businesses that are going global. So you want a business that's in control of its niche, it leads its niche, is really good at it, got the quality aspects I've described before, but is expanding. And if you get a niche business that's going global, what you've got is an emerging global titan. So we stuff our portfolio full of emerging global titans. The only one we've seen in Australia, there's a few, but the one that stands out would be CSL. CSL was a, was a niche leader. It owned its niche in plasma, and it started expanding globally. That's an emerging global titan. Don't you wish you bought CSL a long time ago? Yes. <laughs> so, so that's what we're stuffing our portfolio full of. Um, look, we manage risk because, and one of the reasons you want to be global is because you diversify everything. So we've got businesses in Sweden, we've got businesses in Italy, Spain, the US, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore. The more diversity you have, you improve your risk return profile. So you'll get the overall same level of return, but less volatility in returns. So it's important to be diversified. So we diversify across markets and across different sectors. Ultimately, it's much easier to find emerging global titans in healthcare or software as a service than it is in materials where it's a lot of house builders and cement and chemicals companies or in consumer discretionary where they sell stuff. It's much harder to find businesses that are really niche leaders going global there. But you want to be diversified. So you need to work really hard to find businesses in those sectors that you think are huge opportunities. You want to be fully diversified because it's very difficult to work out what's going to happen in the next six months in terms of macro views. What's Trump going to tweet next? Two days ago, the trade deal was off. Now the trade deal's back on. This has been going on for nine months now. You can't make money betting on that. You might as well go and take your money down and start punting it on on foreign exchange. You've got no chance. So you want to diversify. So yeah, and we've got a big buy list of stocks that we want to buy. And when we when when they they get to an attractive valuation that we think, yeah, that's what we've been waiting for. That's, that's, that's a really good valuation. Then we'll bring it in. And likewise, so when we sell a stock, it's about whether that growth is recognized. So I said, Trade Desk, I think it's got a fantastic future. 
but that's starting to be priced into the stock. The stock's re-rated from six times sales up to 14 times sales. It's not a new story anymore. When the story's not new, it's time to go and look for the story that's unrecognized. I think we can do a, a whole new series called Toby's Watchlist. Just- <laughs> <laughs> so, Toby, you've talked about your long watch list and a lot of a big opportunity set up uh, out there. So I want to ask you, what's the most eclectic out there stock that's uh, that's on your watch list? And what was the research process and thesis behind it? Oh, wow. Okay. That's a really good question. One that should have been submitted in advance. <laughs> uh, no, okay. Um, wow eclectic as in what they do is really interesting or that their business model is just like that shouldn't be a business model whatever whatever comes to mind really we got loads we got businesses that do hearing aids we got guys that build machines that count blood um, not Theneros by the way and, uh, <laughs> that's a different one yeah. uh, we've got businesses in oil and gas and software and guys who make the haptic devices for phones this niche play so on your phones you know when you touch a phone it vibrates it's, things have come a long way since Nokia where you had one vibrate now there's an interaction between how hard you press and where you press and what sort of vibration you get and what sound you get it's called a haptic driver it's really important. There's one company that sells them all to Apple. It's called Cirrus Logic. We own it. It's in the States. It's the world leader in haptic drivers. It also does voice recognition. So now you're not going to have facial recognition. Now what's going to happen is you're going to be able to speak and your voice, fit, your voice print is way more accurate and rare than a fingerprint. So you can't fake a voice print. And so everything's going to be voice identified. And they're now the leader in the voice identification and security technology. So you've got a really niche player there that's got a huge runway. Wow. So I find, I find that fascinating, one, because I had no idea about some of those things, but just, just that you find these companies out there. Like we, with those examples, was, was it sort of top-down, like IVF is a big theme, who are the big players in that sector, let's go down that way, or was it bottom-up in terms of let's start with every company and look for sort of key metrics and then research the industry after you find companies with good metrics so for us yeah it's definitely find bottom up first and then understand the industry because you you can go and say i really like ivf or i like digital programmatic advertising and there's a whole range of businesses that look good at the start of this year that have gone bust like one of the biggest in the world seismic fell over in the u.s about four months ago everyone was raving about it It it's bankrupt so you, you could, you've got that emotional bias that when you find a theme you really, really like and you're like, I'm going to bet on this theme, you've already told yourself you're going to put your money into the theme. Then the only question is, which one of the stocks are you choosing? That's completely asked about the wrong way of doing it. What you want to do is find the characteristics that you want a company team that's not going to lie to you, a company team that's going to under-promise and over-deliver, a company team that's got a good theme behind it, that, that's got a good return on capital versus its, its peers. You've got to start from the ground up then see what you've got, and then go and research the industry. Um, that way, you always make sure you've got a solid base in, in good quality management teams. And that's the thing about small caps as well, that we said large caps is more about the top-down risk, not what the company's actually doing. And small caps are all about what the company's doing, not the top-down. In small caps, you do get much better rates of return, but also management is so much more important in a small cap than a large cap. A great management team can be the difference between a very average stock and an emerging global titan. So understanding management and the quality of the company, the culture of the employees is, is key first. So I've got another one. I'm just going to keep asking questions until Bryce stops me. <laughs> we'll wrap up soon. <laughs> um, there's obviously a lot of duds in the small cap space. There's um, a lot of companies, as you say, that have bad management teams, bad business models, whatever it is. Uh, do, you, do you look at shorting those companies as well or do you just look at going long? 
In my fund, we don't short, but we do have long short strategies at Ausbill uh, that are domestically focused, and uh, they're they're very successful as well. Uh, we don't personally short in in the fund I run with with Simon. No. Well, before Ren can ask a thousand <laughs> other questions, it's confirmed we will be back next week with Toby's watch list. Uh, <laughs> No, um, look, fantastic to get you on the show, Toby. Really appreciate you coming on. You know, I don't think we've had a conversation this detailed about small caps before, so I've absolutely learned a lot. But before we do wrap up, we like to finish with three final questions that we ask everyone. So we'll kick it off. The first one being, do you have any must-read books, investing or otherwise? Yeah, I do. So I thought the first thing is I'd try and reference one that got written recently because everyone gets told to go and find books written which, written really, really early on, which I will come to, but um, just so I can get the, the pronunciation of the name right. I do think it's really important to long-run investing. So Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel. It was written in 2014. It's a great way of trying to understand long-term investing, which is what, what I'm about, as I've tried to explain, unrecognized growth over the longer term and finding the next Google. That, that's got to be an emerging global titan quest. That, that really helps in that. One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, who's a famous fund manager. That really, I think that's important as well, because I was saying you've got to invest in something you understand and you can touch and you, you, get, you can get your head around and want to research. And that book really helps you working out how to invest in brands, etc. And then, obviously, you can't not say Benjamin Graham. So the intelligent investor, it, it, it is the foundation text. You've got to go and read it first. It is semester one, year one textbook. You've got to go and read it. We have read it. Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was dry. It's so um, dry, yeah. If, you, if you're not sleeping, um, if, you, if you're feeling very lonely, that's a great book to put you down. And then you can do security analysis as well after yeah. that. Yeah, no. <laughs> So, uh, second question uh, we like to ask is, what's your go-to source for investing information? Yeah, so annual reports. Go straight to the annual report. They will have their earnings call transcript on the website, or they'll have a recording of their earnings call, and there you can hear what management say, and more importantly, what questions the analysts are asking them. These analysts, their whole job is to understand the company. Mm. You want to get your head around those questions. So first thing, annual reports. And second thing, um, we use Bloomberg and FactSet to get that information, which isn't available to everyone I know. Um, but what's really important is, I said, industry forums. Like get on the internet. Go and find what's out there. It's all publicly available, and you can find so much. So if you could go back to when you first started investing or perhaps when you sold your stocks and went for the coal mine, what would you tell yourself back then as a piece of advice? I think be patient. Don't try and come up with the answer too quickly. Just take it time for it all to settle in, all your research. Secondly, do your own research. And the third one is just don't be, don't be satisfied with an average stock. Go and find an absolute gem. Go and find the next CSL. They're out there. You'll get much more excited by that than putting your money in, in, in a bank, in NAB or CBA or BHP or the latest gold miner your mates told you is going to go up a lot. Like, don't do that. Go, go and invest in something you, you care about and that you understand and that you think is an absolute gem. I love that. I'm inspired. I know. <laughs> don't settle for an average stock. No, don't. Yeah. Don't. You're not average, are you? No. No. <laughs> don't have an average stock. Toby, if anyone wants to find more information on you or on Ausbill, what would be the best way to do so? 
So definitely first place would be the website www.osbill.com.au and that's got everything about our company. We're a very long established company in Australia. We've had good returns so far over a 20 year period. We really like the opportunities we see out there in terms of the client base. Um, you can find information about our fund and the other funds we run at Osbill on, on the website. It'd definitely be the first place to start. Nice. Well, Fascinating conversation. As I said, thoroughly enjoyed taking your time to join us on the show. So uh, a massive thank you on, on behalf of Ren and myself, Toby. Some awesome examples there of some cool stocks that we've never heard of. Hopefully our listeners got as much out of that conversation as we did. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. It was really good fun. Thank you. Unless otherwise specified, any information contained in this podcast is current as at the date of this recording and is prepared by Ausbill Investment Management Limited, ABN 26076316473, AFSL 2297222, and Equity Mates. Ausbill is the issuer of the Ausbill Global Small Cap Fund, AISN 9236196625. This podcast contains general information only and the information discussed does not constitute financial product advice. It does not take account of your individual objectives, financial situation, or needs. Before acting on it, you should seek independent financial and tax advice about its appropriateness to your objectives, financial situation, and needs. Securities and sectors mentioned in this recording are presented to illustrate companies and sectors in which the fund has invested and should not be considered a recommendation to purchase, sell, or hold any particular security. Holdings are subject to change daily. The value of an investment and the income from it can fall as well as rise, and you may not get back the original amount you invested. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Unless otherwise stated, performance figures are calculated net of fees and assumed distributions are reinvested. Due to rounding, the figures in the holdings breakdowns may not add up to 100%. No guarantee or warranty is made as to the accuracy, adequacy, or reliability of any statements, estimates, opinions, or other information contained herein, any of which may change without notice, and should not be relied upon as a representation expressed or implied as to any future or current matter. You should consider the product disclosure statement, which is available at www.osbuild.com. .com.au before acquiring or investing in the fund.